1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C.
0: I'm Ida Vok Europe Correspondent in Berlin.
1: It's Thursday, the 13th of January. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise.
0: This week, we talk about the crises at Russia's borders in Ukraine and Kazakhstan. Of course we understand that the events in Kazakhstan are not the first and not the last attempt at interfering in the internal affairs of our states from the outside. The measures that the CSTO took made it clear that we would not let anyone destabilise the situation at our home. Next, we look at the new Czech government. And I can promise you that I will do everything to make this government a government of change for the future. What does it mean for Central Europe and Europe more broadly?
1: Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. it is just you and me this week, two people, many subjects, one dream. Let's let's get right to it. We have a lot to talk about. So listeners, if you were with us this past Monday, you will have heard my interview with Peter Pomerantsev and thus been familiar with the fact that Russia still has a buildup of troops on Ukraine's border. There is the will they or won't they of if Russia invades, what Russia wants, what Russia can possibly accomplish from all this. Ito, can you give us the latest there?
0: Yeah, so of course your interview with Peter, which is very good, and if you haven't listened to it, I'd, I'd recommend it. But um, Emily, your interview with Peter was recorded before the current round of kind of flurry of diplomacy that we've seen this That's week. Right. So we had um, this US-Russia summit in Geneva, and we've also had contacts between Uh, NATO and Russia meetings in in Brussels a few days after the the Geneva summit. So we've had a kind of flurry of of diplomacy aimed at reducing tensions between NATO and Russia, Um, and in particular aimed at attempting to dissuade Russia from invading Ukraine, which it doesn't seem to be letting off its preparations for. In fact, there are reports this week that Russia is sending more military equipment to the border, like fighter jets. And so we had these these talks between the US and Russia in Geneva, at which, well, it, it seems not much progress was made, and mm. certainly no, no kind of breakthroughs. So um, the Russian Deputy Foreign Minister, Sergei Ryabkov, met with the US Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, and according to both sides, um, Russia it's essentially reiterated its demands that it had issued last month in December for what it calls security guarantees um in, in Europe, which essentially in its eyes are a set of demands which would completely rewrite the post-Cold War order in Europe. And these are these are demands which are viewed as so outlandish by NATO, so outlandish by by the US, that they simply cannot accept. It's things like NATO needs to withdraw weaponry from states which joined the alliance after 1997, which would mean a, a swathe of Eastern European states in particular. NATO needs to rescind the promise of an eventual membership for Ukraine and Georgia, which would essentially allow Russia a veto on what NATO does or doesn't do, which countries NATO does or doesn't accept as members of the alliance. And it, it would also mean. Russia kind of de facto having a, a sphere of influence over its neighbours recognised which the US says it's unacceptable and the US says um, every country, every submarine country has the right to choose its own foreign policy orientation and no other country has a right to veto what a country does or doesn't want to do with its particular foreign policy. So predictably there was not much breakthrough between both sides. We've We've seen some positive noises, but it's it, it's quite thin on the ground. Um, the kind of general sense is that there have been no breakthroughs. And if Russia really is planning to invade Ukraine, then it won't have been this round of, of diplomacy, which is going to dissuade it.
1: There's another part of this, which is that the Biden administration going into these talks made, took great pains to say, we are doing this with NATO and with the EU and various European countries, and maybe Russia will leak. This or that, or say that we've agreed to things that we haven't, but top Biden administration officials said that dog won't hunt. We are all in this together. However, there have also been reports that European countries are worried about the effect that stringent sanctions on Russia might have on the European economy. We have seen before that France and Germany are not, in actual fact, always aligned with the United States and NATO on Ukraine. I guess, you know, you're you're in Europe from the European side is everybody hanging together against Russia in this or despite the Biden administration's best efforts are they splintering already
0: I suppose I suppose the great anomaly of this set of talks and this kind of this round of of summits has been that Russia has been overwhelmingly targeting in terms of who it wants to talk to and Who it's aiming demands at. It's not been targeting NATO. It's not been targeting NATO members. It's been targeting the US. Its demands were addressed to the US. It's almost treating the other NATO member states, of which there are several dozen, overwhelmingly in Europe, as kind of afterthoughts. They don't really matter. What matters is what the US will or won't agree to. And therefore, Russia is. Kind of aiming its its demands at, at the US and it's having meetings with NATO and with NATO representatives after um, the Geneva summit, but the Geneva summit was kind of viewed as as the most important and the ones that the one that the Russians were talking the most about, and there it was it was a bilateral meeting it was between Russia and the US, and so the the opinions of Europeans were kind of treated as almost irrelevant by by the Russian side I, sp- I suppose that speaks to several things we've spoken already on the podcast about how there's a danger that Russia really does believe that NATO is the u s as Warsaw Pact and the u s decides everything with NATO which is not true um right. and there's also this sense that although Europe and the european the European Union and various European countries do want to project an image of strong uh, diplomacy and have an influence on, on geopolitics, um, they're in many cases simply not managing. And the biggest actors out there, in this case, the US and Russia have decided to, for various reasons, go, go over their backs. So it's not as if the US refused to meet Russia. Um, mm-hmm. If the Europeans weren't al- invited along, the Americans met the Russians bilaterally, and the Europeans weren't in the room. And, and there were meetings later in the week, but that does kind of show that the Europeans are still marginalized, whether it's at the European Union level or at the member state level.
1: Right. There are two other factors, one of which I really wanted to get into today. So there's the actual, there's the factor of of Ukraine and Ukraine's own agency in all of this, um, which is sometimes forgotten by literally every other power involved. And then there's also for Russia, the reality that while it is living out its imperial dreams, some might cynically say in Ukraine and Europe it has to contend with what has happened in Kazakhstan Ido for listeners who have not been following the story though it is our, it's it's arguably the largest story or one of the largest stories in world affairs right now we have not talked about it yet can you just fill our listeners in quickly
0: yeah so so this is a really interesting one um because the crisis emerged just a few days before the US was uh, scheduled to meet Russia in Geneva And for a whole different set of reasons, it was another crisis at a country on Russia's borders, which... um Bluntly, like it was just another headache for Russia that it had to deal with very, very quickly. And obviously, Kazakhstan is a is a sovereign state, but nonetheless, Russia maintains huge influence in that country and in Central Asia in general. And so, it was a big um, a big crisis for for Russia at the same time as it was getting ready to meet with the US and present these these demands, and you know, maybe invade Ukraine. Who knows? So the the crisis in Kazakhstan began in, as far as we know, in early January uh, after. A rise in fuel prices—a quite sharp rise in fuel prices. They began in in the west of the country, which is quite rich in oil, and um, they quickly morphed into a pretty massive popular uprising, um, with some political grievances attached. So, Kazakhstan has been an independent country for thirty years. It's an autocratic country for close to thirty years. Uh, It was led by Nursultan Nazarbayev, this kind of strongman leader who created a relatively stable country, which was happy to make alliances with many different geopolitical camps. It had what it called a a kind of multi-vector foreign policy for a long time, um, which meant that it maintained friendly relations with Russia, but also um, was open to Western investment and so on. But at the same time, uh, Nazarbayev oversaw unbelievable corruption. He's been linked to hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars worth of uh, of corruption and of, uh, of theft, essentially. And so he and his close associates and those at the top of the country benefited hugely from these decades of, of independence. And he built a very authoritarian state. And so these, these protests took on a, a political dimension against the regime and against Nazarbayev's continuing influence, in particular because he had stepped down in 2019 and handed over to um, the current president, Dugaev, but had been given a a constitutional role which allowed him, in theory, to maintain a very strong influence over, over the affairs of the country. He's kind of constitutionally known as the father of the nation, and he was head of this body called the National Security Council, which basically meant that he was this kind of father of the nation figure. And so these these protests spread incredibly rapidly, and and at some point, there were elements of the protests which appeared to have been incredibly violent. Um, so government buildings were burned. Um, there was gunfire. Hundreds of people have died. Thousands have been arrested. And um, in response, the current president Tokayev took a, took a very harsh line, announced a crackdown, and. Mm-hmm issued shoot to kill orders. and We we still don't know the full story, um, but it does seem like there was some kind of power struggle among the elites, probably between loyalists of Tokayev and loyalists of Nazarbayev, who were using these widespread protests for coup and counter-coup attempts. So what we've seen since the protest erupted was Tokayev firing a bunch of Nazarbayev loyalists, such as the former prime minister and security chief Karim uh, Mersimov, and removing Nazarbayev from his constitutional role as head of the security council and, and so on. So probably it appears entrenching his influence at the expense of Nazarbayev loyalists. And within that, we also had Tokayev requesting assistance from an organization known as the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is basically a Russian-led NATO. And for the first time in its history, the CSTO uh, used its collective security provisions, um, basically the equivalent of NATO's Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, um, provisions to send in troops to Kazakhstan to help Tokayev's government quell the unrest. So there's a lot going on. I'm aware that's, that's very complicated. For our purposes, we can sum it down to there being another fire on Russia's borders, which Russia had to intervene in, in some way. Um, And what I think is particularly interesting about this is, like with several other cases, so the war in Nagorno-Karabakh and the situation in Belarus, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast, it's basically allowed Russia to entrench its influence with an ad hoc response to a relatively unpredicted crisis. And as in Armenia, as in Azerbaijan, as in Belarus, and now in Kazakhstan, we've seen Russia increase its soft power over, its soft and hard power over its neighbours. And in particular, um, give itself that kind of leverage over its neighbours, which puts it in a position that it wants to be in, where it has a kind of veto on what its neighbors do or don't do with their foreign policy. And in particular, that means that it will probably now ask of Kazakhstan, now that it's helped secure Takaev's leadership, um, that it end its multi-vector policy and move more closely to the to the Russian orbit.
1: Yudo has written on Kazakhstan. So if you're interested in reading more or learning more, we will drop um, the link to that in the show notes to this episode. As I said, it is one of the largest stories in international news and one that we will continue to follow. But now we head slightly west, further away from Russia's borders to the Czech Republic, aka Czechia, where uh, there's a new government and it is pursuing new policies. So in December, a new Czech government was sworn in uh, and Petr Fiala, again, apologies if I mispronounced that, uh, replaced Andrei Babish, who was the former oligarch turned... I know that when they're in Central or Eastern Europe, they're oligarchs and outside they're billionaires. So the the oligarch slash billionaire turned prime minister who had been accused of a sort of complicated story in which he basically misused EU funds. He was ousted by this this coalition government. And it it wouldn't be fair to say that the previous government was not pro-Western, although the president, Zeman, is known for his sympathy to Russia and to China. But the incoming government under Fiala took great pains to, to stress that they were pro-West and hawkish on Russia and China. So that's interesting. But then there was a really interesting development, which is that this week, the speaker of the Czech parliament essentially called for Viktor Orban to be to be voted out uh, in April during Hungarian elections. She said, the Czechs have already expelled Babish. I strongly hope that Hungarians will succeed. It is important for the Czech Republic for Hungary to vote for change in April elections, just like us. Zeman obviously apologized to Orban. I think this is really interesting, right? Because, you know, Hungary has, has stressed the Visegrad 4 That's Hungary, Poland, Czech, and Slovakia, this sort of group at the heart of Europe that rode in the same direction and that in certain cases could work as a counter to prevailing wisdom in Brussels. Slovakia and, and the Czech Republic were never really as all in on this project as as Hungary in Poland and certainly not as Hungary, but this is quite clearly a a break from that. And Ido, I'm I'm interested in in the extent to which this is being perceived as as notable um, in Berlin, or if it's really at this point seen as more Central European jostling.
0: Yeah, I suppose the the question um, in Berlin, as in many other European capitals, is to what extent what is happening in the Czech Republic can help stem what has long been seen as this kind of um, tide of illiberalism in in Central Europe. We had that in um, most obviously in um, Hungary and and Poland um, with those two respective governments, as we've spoken about on this podcast before. But you know, also significantly in um, countries like the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Um, and so, so I'm interested in what direction is this new government. Going, do do you have a sense of um, what what way it's taking? Is it going for the kind of anti-European populist line that that is favoured um, in places like Budapest, or is it uh, is it taking a slightly more constructive line? Because I've I've seen um, noises from the New Czech government, for example. Uh, I think the Europe minister said that there was a rule of law crisis in Hungary and Poland, which might not have been expected from, from the previous government. Do you, do you have a sense about that?
1: They are quite vocal defenders of of the EU. So I think rhetorically, they will be more in line with Brussels than with Budapest. But I think that the proof will will really be in the pudding, as they say, when issues come up like migration, for example, or you know, if there if there is something similar to the start of the pandemic with pandemic recovery, what then will will Prague continue to stick with the EU? So in terms of political gestures, I think yes, that's that's not an issue. But but, but you know, we'll see. It's it's easy for a new government to say yes, we're pro-Europe. It's harder to actually govern as though you're a part of Europe. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, You can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
0: And now it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call. You ask us. It's easier when there's just one of you, isn't it? The question comes to us from Kieran on Twitter, who asks, within the Republican Party, are there significant anti-Trump factions or upcomers who could lead the party in a different direction in the future? Emily, do you want to take a stab at that?
1: Yes. Thank you for this question, Kieran. And thank you to all of you who sent in your questions. I think the keyword here is significant. Are there people in the Republican Party who are Openly anti-Trump, yes, there are individuals who are that. So you could you could point to um, you know Representative Liz Cheney. You could point to um, people like Senator Mitt Romney. You could point to people like Representative Adam Kinzinger. Um, but overall, I don't think that that makes up a significant faction. Uh, I think what you're more likely to see, if there is a counter to Trump, are people like the new Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who who sort of played both sides if that makes sense, and who don't embrace Trump, but they don't push him away either. And I think that that is where the actual power struggle will be in the Republican Party. At this point, um, he still has too great a hold over Trump voters, and everybody in the party knows that.
0: How big of a factor is Trump's own behavior ahead of the 2024 election going to be? And I'm asking in particular, because I've seen some speculation that Trump I mean, everyone kind of talks about him as though he's going to run again, but I've seen some some speculation saying that in his heart of hearts he knows he lost, and the kind of thought of potentially losing a primary or even a general election, um, again would just be too much, um, and and he doesn't want to do it, and so perhaps he might not he might decide not to run. Is in other words, is Trump's hold on the Republican Party a product of just the fact that he never really went away and he keeps alive the speculation as to whether he will or won't run and kind of hints that he will, which means that no one can really distance themselves from him.
1: No, no, no. I think I think that's right. I think that the either he's going to be the candidate or they want him to be Kingmaker. And so they're not going to push him away and push his voters away. Although there is also this very interesting dynamic that he wants to take credit for the vaccine, whereas Republicans more generally are playing with anti-vaxxers. And that Trump has actually been booed at his own uh, his own rallies for taking credit for the vaccines that were developed while he was in office. So that's a dynamic that that is interesting as well. But generally speaking, I think they're waiting to see one if he runs again, um, and two if he doesn't, behind whom he throws his support. Um, I also wanted to say we put out this call for um, for questions on voting rights and democracy. Many of you sent them in. We did not get to them today, but I have good news, which is part three of Battle for the Soul of America. Um, our mini series on Biden's first year in office, which looks at the extent to which he has and has not upheld his promises, will be out next week. And it is on, that's right, Voting Rights and the Threats to American Democracy. So if you were interested in more of that, I will try to work in some of your questions. Please listen when that is out next Wednesday. And you can listen to episodes one and two, which are up now um, on PodFollow, Acast, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's a very smooth plug, Emily. Um, <laughs> thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. If you want us to answer your questions on topics in world affairs, you can send in uh, more at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk.
1: That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday for an interview with writer Tim Parks on Italian politics and the upcoming Italian election. And subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world-review.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please give us a rating or a like. It really, really does help and we appreciate it.
1: Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening, and until next time. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years
0: in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.